I, I told uh, Bob, I'm not a, I'm not a wanderer. <laughs> not the type that wanders in the pulpit. Well, it, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so sorry for the circumstances. We, we just, my wife Jan and I just learned this morning that uh, um, we know Kelly. I didn't realize it because uh, we just heard her maiden name and she went to school with our kids at Inner City. Um, our children, five of them, range in age from 37 is the oldest and uh, the youngest is 28. We got them right all in between, 37, 35, 33, 31, and 28. And then we have, uh, like uh, Bob said, our seventh grandchild on the way due tomorrow. So we'll see, hopefully this week. That'll tip the scales. There'll be four girls and three boys on that. But uh, for our own children, we have four boys and one girl. She's right in the middle. Um, I thought about... Uh, what, what to bring for you today as you're, you're hurting. I appreciate the fact that uh, even though he's only been here for a few months, their family's only been here for a few months, it's very evident that you love your pastor and his family. And uh, uh, that's a wonderful thing. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk. Dan, do we have the outline for them? Do we? I had... Uh, given an outline and, and I just always find that it, it helps to have the outline to follow the flow of thought and, and also to get a feel for when the sermon's going to end, right? So, you know, helps to have that in hand. <laughs> As Dan said, we were down in Gibraltar, Michigan, or I mean Bob said, uh, we were down in Gibraltar, Michigan for... Um, for 30 years. We got there in 1981, and uh, Christmas of 2011, after having some struggles with, uh, with a family in the church that was wealthy and influential, leaving badly, and then drawing young families from the church out of the church into their home Bible study and things like that, uh, Christmas Day 2011 was a Sunday, and my, the treasurer of the church came up to me and he said, Pastor, I've done some projections, and with the current level of giving, we'll be out of money in our general fund by the end of January. And I said, well, um, I've, I'm not the type to leave easily, <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> uh, but I've asked the Lord over the years to make it clear to me if, ever, if it's ever time to leave. And I, and I felt that it was very clear. Um, and so with great difficulty, we, I resigned shortly after that. And our last Sunday there was the final Sunday of January of 2012. And uh, I then went to work for a company out of Ypsilanti, based out of Ypsilanti. It's called Homespec Basement Fix. We do basement waterproofing and foundation and structural repair and crawl space uh, drainage and encapsulation and I'm I'm a manager there uh, one of the production managers but also do a lot of in-home inspections and um, things like that uh, oddly enough I I do all the training for the structural stuff I mean don't ask how I went from 
pastoring for 30 years to understanding structure. The Lord's been gracious in that, but, uh, but I do appreciate opportunities to uh, bring the word of God uh, to God's people. Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, let's look at that together, beginning in verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Stop there for now. I, I believe that any person today who examines the world with an analytical eye is filled with questions like, why is there so much injustice? I mean, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? And why doesn't God do something? I wonder how many of us on occasion felt the words sobbing from our throats. Oh, God, why? Why? 600 years before the birth of our Lord, we find questions such as these on the lips of the prophet Habakkuk. The year was 609 B.C. The nation of Israel had suffered civil war and it had been divided for nearly three centuries. The nation to the north had retained the name Israel. To the south, the nation was called Judah. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of God's people was bludgeoned out of existence by the Assyrians. Only Judah remained. But Judah was a small, weak, vassal state that existed solely at the whim of powerful Egypt. In 609 B.C., a monumental event took place. Judah's King Josiah died. Josiah's reign followed hot on the heels of the monarchy of Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked king of Judah. In fact, Manasseh attempted to obliterate the memory of God, uh, of the God of Israel, from the minds of the Jewish people. He set up idols and groves in which to worship and to commit fornication in the names of these idols. In the reign of Manasseh, the temple of God in Jerusalem fell into disrepair. But along came Josiah, one of the few bright spots in the politics of Judah. Josiah instituted reform. The places of worship for idols were cast down. They began to clean out and clean up the temple. And in the temple, they found a copy of the word of God. When it was read, it struck to the heart of Josiah. And he issued a proclamation that God's word would be read in the hearing of all the people. And revival took place. In 609 B.C., Josiah died. His son Jehoahaz ascended the throne, but three months later, Egypt, eager to protect her interests, marched into Jerusalem 
Now, there were competing empires in that day, Egypt to the south, Assyria to the north. To the northeast, a new empire was gaining strength, called Babylon. And Judah served as a buffer between these empires. Egypt was eager to preserve uh, uh, her interests and, and protect her interests in Judah. And so with the death of good King Josiah, Egypt was concerned about the future of Judah. So she marched in, she deposed Jehoahaz, placed his brother Jehoiakim upon the throne. Now Jehoiakim was a wicked man, filled with evil and rebellion. And he immediately set out to reverse the reformation that Judah had undergone under the reign of his father, Josiah. Soon, under the leadership of Jehoiakim, his wickedness began to filter down through the people of the nation, particularly among those who were only superficially influenced by the revival in Josiah's day. What I'm describing for you is a time of great moral crisis in the nation of Judah. It was a time of violence. It was a time when justice was perverted and, and twisted. It was a time when the word of God seemed to have no impact at all. But it was also a time of political crisis internationally. The empires were in flux. Egypt to the south. Assyria, who had bludgeoned the northern kingdom out of existence, was still on the march. And to the northeast, Babylon was on the rise. It was in this setting of moral crisis and political upheaval that Habakkuk cried out in lament to God. And the book begins with the anguished cries of the prophet Habakkuk. How long, O Lord? How long will you be indifferent? You do not hear. How long will you be inactive? You do not help. Verses 5 through 11 contain God's reply to the mournful lament of the prophet Habakkuk. God's answer to his prayer was not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. God said, essentially, you have cried out for judgment in Judah. I will judge. And the rod that I will use to chastise my people is Babylon. Verses 6 through 11 give us a description of the Babylonians. They were just emerging as a world power. Here, God describes them as a people that stood against everything that God's people should be for. They're described as ruthless, fearsome, self-sufficient, arrogant, fierce, and powerful, violent and cruel, and finally as guilty men. Habakkuk tells us that God raised up the Babylonians, used them to accomplish his purposes, and then punished them for the very things that they did. This wasn't what Habakkuk wanted to hear. He wanted judgment, but he didn't want it to come at the hands of the Babylonians. And in this theological crisis, he is confronted with the truth that everybody works for God. Everybody works for God. God in his sovereignty is capable of using even the wicked to accomplish his divine purposes. 
There will be times when God will answer our prayers in ways that we do not want. When this happens, you need to know this, this is very important. When this happens, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Our theology needs some fine-tuning. Today, I want to focus on verses 5 and 6. Those two verses, I believe, illustrate four eternal principles that speak of God working in history. And as we look at these four eternal principles, we will understand this. I always used to, in our church, give a take-home truth uh, with the message, and so I've put it in your notes there, this truth that God is the Lord of history who is always at work accomplishing his purposes for those who are his own. Did you get that? God is the Lord of history who is always at work accomplishing his purposes for those who are his own. Each of the principles that we will consider from these two verses strike at the heart of common misconceptions that we have. And I think the first misconception that we need to slay is a false view of God, a view that says our God is limited, our God is somehow small. Verse 5 says, this is God speaking, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something. Oh, the first principle is that God has a plan for history. God has a plan for history. Habakkuk had questioned God's apparent inactivity, but God was not inactive. God was executing a plan. Some of you may be familiar with the theology known as deism. Deism is an idea that says God is completely inactive. It's what some have called the spinning top approach to history. I don't see tops out there very much anymore. Remember, you older folks like me, you know, there used to be tops that you'd spin in, in, uh, on the floor and so on. But the spinning top approach that God created the universe, he set history spinning like a top, and then sat back to see where it would go. And God never breaks into history to do anything. Others have similarly likened God to a clockmaker who makes a clock and then lets it tick endlessly on its own. That's deism. God is inactive. There's a more prominent theology that many people hold today. It's a theology of Arminianism. Now, Arminians believe that God is mostly inactive. Mostly inactive. They believe God takes the nudge approach to history. They say that God created the universe, set things spinning, and is standing afar off to see how things go. Occasionally, when things begin to deviate too far off track, God reaches down and gives a little nudge to get things back on track. Deism and Arminianism both have a small view of God. They both worship a tiny, little, limited God. On the other hand, biblical truth confronts us with the fact that God started history, God controls history, 
and God will end history. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And for those who take the nudge approach and believe that God just has a hand in the large affairs of history, the prophet goes on to say in, in 46.11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Oh, my friends, God is the God of history. And God's people must begin to take refuge and comfort in the truth that things do not happen by accident. God is doing something. Notice he not only said, I am doing something. He says, I am doing something in your day. I believe that illustrates for us the fact that not only does God have a plan for history, but God's plan is on schedule. God's plan is on schedule. Habakkuk was troubled over the apparent delay in God's judgment upon the wickedness of Judah. Sometimes we're tempted to get impatient with God, aren't we? We have another misconception, a false view of circumstances. We tend to believe that what we see is all there is. Like Habakkuk, I often find myself incensed over the injustices of our society. I believe any sensitive believer does. We murder babies and let murderers live. Our communities are ravaged by violence, and yet we blame our communities. We teach children that they're animals, and then we are appalled and amazed when they act like animals. Often we're tempted to cry out like Habakkuk, How long, O oh Lord? Do something. Do, do something now. Oh, we can, we can be so impatient with God. Understand the biblical truth. Our little slice of history is a small part of a larger plan. Our lives are like the thread of a tapestry God is weaving that encompasses all of history. Our ancestors impacted our lives, and we in turn impact those who follow us. Listen, we cannot begin to judge the plan of God based on what we see in this moment of time. He is not finished. And all that he is doing is on schedule. And yes, even when a sweet little six-year-old girl named Maggie has a brain tumor, God's plan is on schedule. 
I think this truth is best illustrated in my mind in Galatians 4.4, which speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the plan of the Father. You know the verse, it says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. I mean, consider what God did through the centuries to prepare the world for the coming of his Son. God raised and deposed nations. He moved cultures. He manipulated individuals from Caesar in the palace in Rome to a little impoverished couple in Nazareth, all to put them in the right place at the right time so that the Apostle Paul could write, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Oh, listen, I want you to take heart with me in knowing that no matter how black the hour God is at work, and what he is doing is on schedule. God also said to Habakkuk, I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. From this we see that God's plan is not determined by men. Never in his wildest imagination could Habakkuk have conceived this plan of God. God said, I am raising up this ruthless nation, and I'm going to use them as an instrument of judgment. Here's another misconception. We have a false view of ourselves. We think that we can somehow determine how, determine how God should run his universe. We do. Not only does Arminianism have a limited God, but in every form of Arminianism, we are the ones who limit God. In that system of theology, God is always playing defense. God is always reacting rather than acting. It says, we are the ones who know how things ought to be, and God had better get in line. Oh, how different that is from the theology of the Bible that tells us God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He tells Habakkuk, you cannot even imagine what I'm going to do. Again, we read it earlier, but listen to what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. Verse 6, all flesh is grass. Verse 7, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Verse 12, almost sarcastically, God says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the paths of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Oh, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Oh, friends, God's plan is not determined by men. God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. He does all things for his good pleasure, and he does not need to ask our permission to do so. In verse 6, we find a fourth principle illustrated. We read, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians. I am raising up the Babylonians. We have seen that God has a plan for history that his plan is on schedule, that God's plan is not determined by men. In verse 6, we find that God's plan includes everybody. I think a fourth misconception that we have is a false view of the ungodly. Somehow, we imagine that they are outside the plan of God. Do you know that the ancient Jews believed that... uh, The only reason God created Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell? Often we view unbelievers from that standpoint, that they serve no earthly purpose, and yet God revealed to Habakkuk that the ungodly were an integral part of his purposes in history. All people are included in the plan of God. God controlled Israel, He also controlled her enemies, in this case, the Babylonians. A review of history shows that it was almost miraculous the way the Babylonians came to power. A generation before Habakkuk, the Babylonians were just small, scattered bands of individuals living in the delta region of the Euphrates River. They began to unite and organize, and and almost overnight, they challenged the two strongest nations on earth for world supremacy. They took the city of Babylon from the Assyrians in 611 B.C. They crushed Assyria and took her capital city, Nineveh, in 609 B.C. And they utterly decimated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C., But two generations later, 70 years later, Babylon was no longer in existence. Think about that. God raised her up. God fulfilled his purposes. And God even chastised and crushed the very instrument that he used in his judgment of Judah. My friends... God has a plan. His plan is on schedule. It is not determined by mankind. And his plan includes everybody. In the summer of 1939, a very famous American pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was pastor of a prominent church in Philadelphia, was asked to preach a series of meetings in Scotland. So he traveled to Europe with his family, and rather than expose his family to the grueling itinerary that had been established for him, his family stayed at a resort on the coast of France in a town called Normandy. 
At the close of August, Barnhouse finished one meeting and then had a week with no meetings scheduled. <clears throat> His next meeting would begin in September, so he thought, here's an opportunity for me to spend a little time with my family. So he traveled by train to London. In London, he boarded a plane to fly across the English Channel to meet his family in Normandy. Just before he left, the official who was ready to stamp his passport asked him what his travel plans were. He said he was going to spend a few days with his family, and on Saturday, he intended to fly back, travel to Scotland, and resume his preaching schedule on Sunday. The official looked at him and said, if you want to be in Belfast on Saturday, I strongly urge you not to go to France today. <clears throat> you see, at that time, Europe was in political turmoil. Storm clouds of war were on the horizon. That weekend, all was coming to a head. <clears throat> it was the weekend when Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of England, gave his ultimatum to Adolf Hitler. Barnhouse thought he could visit his family and return before anyone waged war, so he boarded the plane, and as he boarded, the official said, don't forget that I warned you. <clears throat> he enjoyed the few days of retreat with his family, but on Thursday of that week, word came over the radio that there would be no more flights to England. War was imminent. If Barnhouse was to continue his preaching, he was going to have to travel from Normandy to Paris, change trains, travel to the coast, catch a steamer across the English Channel, and then find a train that would take him to Scotland. So he set out on his journey. While he traveled through the beautiful, lush countryside of France, France began to mobilize for war. Back in the Middle Ages, they had developed a system of warning towns of impending danger and assembling men for war that was still in place during those years just prior to World War II. It was a system of ringing bells. They called it the ringing of the toxin. When the bells rang, the men knew they were to assemble and mobilize for war. That little train that Barnhouse boarded wound its way through every little village between Normandy and Paris. On his way, bells were ringing throughout the countryside. Every train terminal was jammed with men with terror or grim determination on their faces and women and children weeping, knowing that in all probability, some there would not be returning. When he arrived in Paris, it was the first night of blackout all of the lights were either out or hidden. He said it was an eerie sensation to walk through the streets of Paris when all was silent and black. The next day, he traveled to the coast and found the steamer. As they made their way across the English Channel, news came across the radio that Hitler had moved into Danzig and had begun to bomb. The captain of the steamer said, this is it, there's no turning back. Barnhouse landed at the White Cliffs of Dover and made his way to London. <clears throat> From London, he took a train. But while in, while in London, he noted that thousands of children were already being evacuated from the city. Children were crying and screaming, mothers weeping. Just like in France, men were mobilizing for war. And as he traveled across England, they frequently had to stop to allow truckloads of children, truckloads of would-be soldiers to pass. 
He arrived at his destination very late Saturday night with just enough time to get a few hours sleep before preaching the next morning. He made his way to the church and arrived just before 11 a.m., just as the service was getting started. <clears throat> 11 a.m. was the time that Chamberlain, the prime minister, had chosen to address the nation. The church was filled. The pastor thanked Barnhouse for being there and said, I pray, God, that you will have something for them because this church will be full of lads who will never come back. As the service began, a note was slipped to the pastor, then on down to Barnhouse. It read, No reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. That was the very moment that Barnhouse was introduced to speak. Picture the scene and put yourself in the place of a man who steps to a pulpit at the moment war is declared, looking into the faces of some who will not return, looking into the faces that were filled with anguish. What do you preach? He opened the scriptures and read the words of Jesus Christ. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Then methodically he recounted his journey from Normandy to Paris, across the channel and through England. He told of the bells ringing and the thousands mobilizing. Do not be troubled. He spoke of homes, millions of them being broken up. Do not be troubled. He spoke of thousands of children torn from their mothers whose cries represented the wail of their country. Do not be troubled. Men were going to die. Do not be troubled. There would be nakedness and loneliness. Do not be troubled. How could Barnhouse preach such a thing? How could Jesus Christ say such a thing? My friends, they could say, do not be troubled. Because they understood the eternal truths we see in the book of Habakkuk. We serve a God who is on his throne. We serve a God who has a plan for history. And God is accomplishing his purposes for those who are his own. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, our world and our culture are in crisis Maybe you find yourself crying out, How long, O oh Lord? Not because of culture and world issues, but because of personal pain and personal tragedy, personal crisis, a pastor and his wife who have a daughter who's very sick. My friends, the message of Habakkuk is for everyone here, and it's a message of encouragement. When we're faced with difficulties, doubts run rampant. And yet, get this, those doubts can be turned into devotion. Confusion can be turned into confidence if we understand the message of Habakkuk. Worry is transformed into worship. Fear turns to faith. Terror becomes trust. Our anguish melts away into adoration. 
Why? It's because we understand that the answer to the question why, or we answer the question why with truth about who, who is in control. We find courage for every crisis when we understand that our glorious sovereign God is on his throne. It is one thing for us to speak of the sovereignty of God. It is yet another for us to believe it. I challenge you in the face of international crisis, in the face of moral crisis, and in the face of personal, very real crisis, do you truly believe the lessons of Habakkuk? Do you truly put your trust in the God of the universe who has a plan? whose plan is on time, whose plan is not determined and swayed by men, whose plan involves everyone, including you. This is the God that we must trust. This is the God that we must serve. I didn't note the time of the clock when I got up here. I don't know how long I've gone, but would you indulge me a personal illustration? I saw a couple of yes nods, so I'm going with that. <laughs> nobody, was, nobody was bold enough going, nah, you know, kind of hungry. <laughs> 2004, 14 years ago. Um, our daughter had just gone off to college in Illinois, was living in her grandparents, my wife's parents' uh, basement apartment. Uh, she was 19. We had our fourth born, who's 17 at that time. She's about 31 now. Um, Andrew, who had said, Mom and Dad, I don't embrace your faith. I'm not a believer. He was that inner city. Uh, he had made it clear at the school that he wasn't a believer. And uh, rightly so, I believe, he was not invited back for his senior year. Uh, and, and I agree with that. We got wind that Andrew was going to move out right after the last week of school, his 11th grade year. It was hard for us because we knew that it was because he wanted to pursue a life that he couldn't live under our roof, he wanted to pursue a life of sin. Around that time, we found out in a roundabout way that our daughter was in a sinful relationship and we talked to her and urged her scripturally to repent and forsake this sin and she said mom and dad I don't believe the same way you do I've just been putting on an act for years and it was hard we believe that Biblical genuine love 
doesn't enable sinful activity. And so we had selected a day when we would go back to Illinois, go out to Illinois, get our cell phone that we were providing for our daughter. We're not going to support her in her sinful life. And uh, sign her car back over to her, not pay her insurance anymore, things like that. And take one last time to urge her to repent. That was the first weekend of June, I believe, of 2004. And we found out just the week, the end of that week, that our son Andrew was moving out, that he was leaving home at 17 years old before his senior year. We were pretty broken up. It was a tough weekend. And that Sunday morning, I happened to preach this sermon. And at the end of the service, I said, I need to have a family meeting with the church explained to you a few things and I shared with our church body who loved us dearly what was going on with two of our children at that time there wasn't literally wasn't a dry eye in the place they they loved us they loved our children and I said to them how are we getting through this I said, first of all, my wife and I, our relationship is strong. And we are there for each other. But secondly, I believe with every fiber of my being what I just preached. God has a plan. God's plan is on schedule. God's plan is not determined by mankind. And God's plan includes everybody. you a little bit of the end of the story our son Andrew became a dad at 19 didn't marry later in his he experimented with a lot of a lot of sinful things drugs being one of them later in his 20s he was with another girl and they had a child they got married Andrew became a heroin addict hard thing it's a hard thing his wife divorced him rightly so we couldn't trust him we locked our doors and windows to make sure our son wouldn't break in we went through some very trying times now I'm happy to say by the grace of God Andrew ended up in jail and he picked up a Gideon Bible and began to read it and God gripped his heart and Andrew committed his life to Christ in 2015. And today, he's living for the Lord. He's serving the Lord. He's married a sweet, godly young lady. And they're going to have their first child any day now, a little girl. Our daughter's still not a believer. She needs a lot of prayer. But folks... This is where the, the theological rubber meets the road, if you will. Do you believe it? Do you believe this? 
your pastor and his wife are at the hospital with a six-year-old with a brain tumor? Do you believe this? Oh, listen, God is in control. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture and how it so pungently speaks of our need to trust even when what we see looks black, even when we do not understand what we see. Help us to realize that the circumstances around us have not taken you by surprise. They are not beyond your control. Father, thank you for the comfort and peace that come from knowing that you are accomplishing your purposes for us. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in the knowledge of your control in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name.